Hi, this is ARK Watson with Catholic Reads, and I'm joined today by Annette Young, author of A Distant Prospect and By Violence Unavenged, um, which was released uh, just this month, right? Yep, that's right. Mm -hmm. Oh, in June, it's to be released, yeah, in the May. Oh, okay, so it's about to be released. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, it will have already been released. Um, but anyways, uh, so, the, these two novels, they're both historical fiction novels, um, and they're in the same world, but they're very different. Um, Distant Prospect is set in Australia, and it's sort of a coming-of-age novel with, set with children. Um, specifically, it follows, I cannot say her name, is it Luxe? Just use uh, Lushak, but just say Lucy. Lucy. Okay, <laughs> her name is Lushak or Lucy, uh, she's an Irish immigrant to Australia after World War II. She's recovering from polio. World War I, yeah. Or sorry, oh. after World War I, and she's recovering from polio, and she joins a uh, musical quartet and makes friends with these girls and kind of grows up with them. And then in your sequel, kind of sequel, I don't know. I, I didn't read the first one, I read the second one, and I understood it perfectly fine. I need to go back and read it, uh, the first one. Um, it's told from a different perspective, a different um, point of view, but it's the same quartet. It's Phoebe instead of Luxe. Uh, That's right. And um, I know I'm butchering that name. I'm just going to say Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a huge buildings Roman again, but it goes beyond her childhood into her adulthood and follows her out of Australia um, and into uh, Austria. Um, because uh, when she was very young, her mother was murdered and her father kind of went a little crazy and her whole family fell apart essentially after that. And so since then she's had this like thirst for she says justice, but it's kind of vengeance. You know, one of those things. Uh, and she traces her killer back to Europe and also goes to Austria because her uh, father had dual citizenship. Uh, yeah. And she, he was part of like the elite musical culture there and kind of brushed shoulders with a lot of uh, royalty. And she goes and she takes up his old acquaintances and kind of learns about uh, her father, more about her father. And uh, and then, you know, you've got World War II just starting to brew up and these like, you know, troublesome Nazis uh, bickering in the, uh, bickering in the corner that um, become a greater and greater threat. Um, so yeah, so that's a brief summary of the book. Um, if you want to read my full review, it'll, or like a, Esley Hall's full review, it'll be on the website. But um, what inspired you to write this this series and, and these, why, why, why these settings? And um, It's an interesting one. Um, do you want for both books or the first book or the second book? Tell about the first book first. Yeah. Okay, well, it's going back quite a long way now because I first wrote Distant Prospect back in 1995 and um let's see and then rewrote it um in 12 oh is it 20 2010 began to rewrite it and, yeah, so, 
very long boil time, that one. Um, so I'll talk about Prospect first, um, which was, funnily thing enough, I had, I've always had imaginary friends, okay? So I've had imaginary characters in my head ever since I was a very small child. And I would often retreat into whatever imaginary world I had created. And that was my solace all the way through school, um, even into university and post-university, um, was this was this other world that I was sort of almost more comfortable in than the real one. And um, it really actually got to quite a serious problem um, that I... <laughs> would prefer the imaginary place to the real place at any time and was just hungering for for that that time alone and I thought well look you're gonna to have to do something with this um and um yes make something of it and I never thought I'd ever write fiction ever ever I was not a big writer at school I was good at English but I was lazy as um didn't didn't bother with it whatsoever but somehow um by the time I finished my bachelor's at university I was teaching which I hated um I had more questions than my students um to ask my students and they wanted to answer and so I thought I've got to go and do something with that so I was doing a, I ended up doing a PhD and I was doing it on Charlotte Bronte and I happened to be working with a um, professor who'd done um, a whole, well, her PhD had been the early writings of Charlotte Bronte and she had gone traveling all over the world to collect Bronte manuscripts and um, I was uh, transcribing them and then analyzing them. And I got into this transcribing process as well. And I suddenly realized that she was doing exactly what I was doing. She had invented an imaginary world that she was living. And when I read some of her, um, there are not many diary entries, but there was this sense of people taking over her head and um, it just not quite a, not quite a sickness, just a, a just a, a very um, fertile, and incredibly turbulent world sometimes. And, um, and I sort of thought, well, she can do it. So can I. Um, at the same time, I was involved in researching a PhD thesis on her novels. And, well, what better way to understand a novel than write one yourself? So that's what prompted it. So it was sort of half a, a psychological need, half a literary exercise um, to really understand how a novel is put together. I'm a big structure person. Um, I like to know how things work. I suppose it comes from being a musician. Um, you've got to take things apart and work work things out. Um, anyway, and so I started to write very hesitantly at first, and then it just started torrenting out, torrenting, torrenting, torrenting. And this book emerged in the first six months of doing my PhD. I'll never forget taking it to show my supervisor. So I've done this. So there wasn't any um, expose or summary of a, a doctoral thesis. There was a book. <laughs> um, I wasn't terribly good at that point um, and anyway did that tinkered with it for the next 15 years and it wasn't until after I married um, that I sat down and rewrote it completely I love the Charlotte Bronte angle I love she's one of my favorites 
I have, oh, yeah. I have to reread Jane Eyre every year. Have to. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's wonderful. <laughs> yes. So, um, oh, she's just the most amazingly passionate, insightful um, writer. This is marvelous stuff. Anyway, so that was that was Prospect. At the end, so, so 2011, no, yeah, 2011, 2012, I, no, 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 no. I finished it, yeah, 2012, that's right. And by the time I finished that one, I realised I had five books on my sleeve. I knew I could write. And I never thought I'd write any more books after writing Distant Prospect. It was just, you know, just the sort of the little passionate work that you know meant so much etc cetera, etc cetera. and a book that changed my life actually and but then anyway people started enjoying it so well, I can I'll write another one um and so started writing by violence unavenged which has morphed into a trilogy so that's you know that's another story altogether and this is <laughs> um yeah this is uh, it's this has been quite a different right to prospect was uh, prospect in a sense was my what you call juvenilia you your work of childhood that sort of come into fruition during adulthood and you know but it's based a lot on um not so much childhood experience but the childhood world the childhood imaginary world whereas by violence unavenged i think um i would have to say it's a much more calculated piece um much more deliberate much more um you sort of you know it's yeah, it's, yeah, you know what the tools are, and you you know you sort of a, yeah a far more yeah, different work in that, but still the same imaginative indulgence. <laughs> I do live in a world of imaginary characters. <laughs> um, so why the World War One and Two setting? Um, I've always loved the 1920s. Um, I was very attached to my grandmother as a child and that was her era. So there was just a natural affiliation for that. And so that's that's why the novels were set, that the first novel was set back then mainly. And it grew from there actually because um, well, I've, I've always had a historical interest in stuff. History is my best subject at school. I've always, you know, kept on, did, did it at university, majored in it um, at bachelor level. My PhD had a historical bent to it, um, supporting the literary analysis. Um, so there's always been that interest in history. Um, I personally love that pre, uh, that interwar era and it actually was interesting in its own right because I had to investigate quite seriously about World War One and and so forth, and so started doing that. And um, as you do when you're a writer, because you have to know as much as you can about whatever it is to be able to bring to your characters what you need to bring to them. Um, and I actually didn't know anything about anything terribly much about the 1930s when I began by violence unavenged, and it sort of stemmed from having built the world of a distant prospect and the obligation to continue that world. And so it resulted in a whole lot of new reading and it became just quite a very interesting um, investigation. And I mean, I love it now. I'm fascinated by it. Um, but it was not it was not a um, an era that I was really familiar with. I mean, I was mainly a medieval scholar um at sydney uni um as well as american and 19th century australian history um so 20th century history was not my forte whatsoever 
Um, and so it, it was a sort of a new project for me, which was lovely. Well, I mean, you, you kind of drew from some of that medieval history and that, um, you know, it, it's not set during the Austrian Empire, but the characters mm. that you built, they talk about it, um, they idealize it. Uh, yeah. And I didn't really know much about the Austrian Empire um, yeah. before reading your book. Mm. Well, I didn't either until I started writing it, but um, it was <laughs> it was it was interesting how that happened because um, when I was doing the work for Distant Prospects and developing the the adult characters, um, in particular Phoebe's father Roderick and his milieu, his friends, the Epstein's, and so forth. Um, and I had to decide where they had received their musical training. Um, and at the turn of the century, the two main centres for that were Vienna and Paris. And I had not been to Paris, but I had been to Vienna, so I decided to pick Vienna. Um, and with that led to an investigation, well, who would have been Roderick's teacher? And so it's an investigation of key violin personalities in Vienna at the turn of the 20th century. And that led me to Arnold Rosé, who's a very interesting character in his own right. And <laughs> Sorry? Uh, Rosé is a historical figure. Yes. Ooh. Yes, yes. He was the first violinist of the Rosé Quartet, which played for more than 50 years together. I mean, various personalities came in and out, but Rosé was first violinist from the beginning. He was also the concertmaster of the Vienna, the Vienna Philharmonic, as it became known. Um, and he and his family are very interesting figures, um, very prominent figures in Viennese society. And it was a very intriguing um in fact, i don't want to give too much away here so <laughs> um but with that came the interest in the habsburgs and particularly there's a carl von habsburg um and his um his position at the end of world war one and the austrian situation at the end of world war one um and it was quite fascinating because i've always approached you know you know in school um through university reading and stuff when you read about the war you usually read about the war from the british side um and so having to investigate world war one from the other side was really fascinating mm -hmm. and how this would have affected um different characters particularly somebody like phoebe's father who was an australian had you know spent his last years of his youth in vienna um, had loved this place, had fitted into this milieu and then being, you know, coming back to Australia and then being faced with the cataclysm of World War One and the compromising of loyalties and so forth. Um, what position that put him in? And it just became fascinating. Um, just a wonderful way to sort of view history from another perspective and to, to bring all that out. And so... Um, I, I what I found especially interesting was that a lot of the, um, they're not royalty when Phoebe knows them, right? Because after World War I, um, the royalty yeah. is abolished. Um, so all the ex-counts and dukes and barons mm -hmm. are regular, kind of upper middle class folks. Um, but, you know, she's talking to them and, and they talk about it. They seem to think of their empire as the Holy Roman Empire. Um, mm -hmm. 
And just that that Catholic significance of that was uh, very interesting to me. Well, you know, it had been in place for 700 years. I mean, at least the Habsburgs had had a, you know, a position in Europe since the 13th century. Um, and so there's this enormous tradition of government um, and the wisdom that brings with it, um, a sense of family, a sense of history, a sense of duty um, is incredibly strong, incredibly, you know, it's, it's ingrained in the in the psyche um in the culture um so that you know and for it to be overturned so quickly through um a communist revolution which effectively what the 1918 1919 uprisings were they were driven by um you know as along with the whole the impact of the war you know it's just traumatic to say the least. Um, and, you know, you, you can't just sweep 700 years of history yeah. <laughs> under the cuff. Realise how um, Germany's kind of latching on to this idea of empire and, and wishing for mm. empire was kind of grow, grew out of that nostalgia for this ancient Catholic empire. Um, yeah, it, it has very deep roots. I mean, this, this is back to Charlemagne, you know, this mm. is back to... 800 AD you know this is it's it's long very deep roots and Germany's enmity with France has been this you know it has existed since the division of the Holy Roman Empire between Charlemagne's sons if my medieval history serves me correct here um you know it's 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 <laughs> it's very deep rooted mm -hmm. um the, yeah the whole the whole concept of the Holy Roman Empire and what that actually um what that encapsulated you know, this unit sort of it was yeah a unity of christian um lords kings and their their duty to protect their subjects from external hostility hostile influence at first it was the the moorish influence mm -hmm. um but then later on the duty to protect the subjects from internal hostilities is what arose with Protestantism later. And this is the difficulty with Germany. You have the rise of Prussia in the 17th century and this very Calvinistic um, authority coming in and coming to bear upon um, the, the, the other German states. And then the unification of Germany stems from that. And it's quite a different um, idea to the Austrian um, old Holy Roman Empire very deeply Catholic Christian, um, multi-ethnic, and itself had a very, very difficult time um, coming to terms with the nationalism that was rising and in the industrial world that was um, ensuing, pardon me, um, in the 19th century. Um, anyway, there's an awful lot of history. <laughs> yeah, it really charmed me that um, Phoebe's father, this man who's but he's half white, half Chinese, um, yeah. and part Jewish himself. Uh, he fits yeah, right in to this, um, to this bourgeois Viennese culture, and, and nobody makes a fuss about it. I mean, mm. you touch on some issues, like, uh, was it Emil? One of your Jewish characters had some complaints yeah. against the old empire, but, but it wasn't the stodgy, purely racist... Um, you know, culture that I, I guess I have 
kind of been led to assume a lot of past histories are. And that was yeah. really encouraged. Yeah. Well, the, Austri the Austro-Hungarian Empire was enormous um, in terms of um, uh, my, my youngest son has just come in um, with some new findings. I'll tell you more about that later. <laughs> um, but, you know, not a, okay, German was the first language um, out of um, administrative need, basically. It was the language of the, of the, the, the ruling, the government, um, and sort of like the way French is the language of the Olympic Games. It was the, the language that, that was not common. You need to pick something. But, you know, it extended as far north as Poland. It extended into Galicia, um, which is now part of Russia, um, part of the Ukraine. Um, um, it extended down to the Baltic states. So you've got Bosnia, Herzegovina. I can't say it's too early in the morning at the moment. Um, so you know, all the, the, the Bulgaria, Romania, down, to, down south, Yugoslavia down as far as the Adriatic Sea, so Croatia, Slovenia, um, and you know, as well as as well as Hungary and what is now known as modern Austria. And so you had this conglomerate of you know about eleven languages at least. Um, these very different ethnic. When when um, Bosnia Herzegovina was um, attached to Austria at the beginning of the twentieth century, it became part of this. Um, multinational confederate um, configuration um, it incorporated a number of Muslims and it was the Habsburg Empire that did give um, settlement to lots of Jews who were expelled by the Russian Tsars um, and so that pale of settlement it was, it was known so around Galicia parts of the Ukraine um, the, in, into Poland um, had large Jewish populations which, who were able to live there. You know, it was this umbrella, this this um, that gave, yeah. And it was quite interesting. The governmental policies that were put in place, and you know, specific situations were considered to try and work out what was the best way of providing protection for these people, allowing them to be able to live freely, at the same time maintaining, um, you know, a, a reasonably functioning state. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary achievement and I think, I think a lot needs to be looked into that um, to see how it worked <laughs> because it, it's incredibly um, But you have all sorts of particular considerations like, for instance, um, Krakow in Poland, which was created as the duchy um, because there was, um, it was sort of like a respect for the, the need for independence at the same time to have that subsidiarity um, with the with the empire that there was this contribution there was protection as well as contribution of raw materials and um you know cultural integration a lot of things but at the same time a reasonable degree of political freedom um and it is very cleverly done um in a very very humane very christian very um very charitable way um yeah i know anyway didn't you dedicate um, By Violence and Avenge to, uh, was it the, the last emperor? That's or, right. The best yeah, Charles. Yeah. Why did you do that? Um, he is such an interesting character. I read Joanna Bogle's book, um, A Heart for Europe, and she does discuss the 
Holy Roman Empire extremely well and the the um, contribution of the Habsburgs to um, to society, really. And it, what impressed me was the way in which this man, who was never really, he was, uh, you know, not directly in line to the Austrian throne. Um, he came there by default following the, um, well, the assassination of, um, well, the deaths, early deaths of um, earlier heirs and then the assassination of Franz Ferdinand put him next in line. All of a sudden, he had to come to terms with this machinery of government and in a situation where, you know, there were a lot of things happening that was you know, that led up to World War One, that um, was way out of his, um, you know, sort of ability as a young man. You know, he was only in his late 20s when this happened, but having to deal with political um, you know uh, the Poloniuses of um, <laughs> of the of the Austrian and German um, government. You know, really shrewd foxes who've been in the in the job for years have got their their policies, got their you know worked out how they 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 um, they're handling this and being you know completely out of his depth and having to deal with you know the, the war. He came to the throne in 1916. Um, and having to having to work work it all out, um, and then you're completely overridden um, in the aftermath of that of Versailles. Um, his his um, desires for um, a federation of the former empires, so the various little what became the the, the little satellite or the little countries of um, you know, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, um, and so forth. Um, wanting to have a sort of a federation, sort of maintaining the the old Christendom that um, had been his legacy, um, but it was completely overridden, and you had these small states set up in accordance with you know some more republican um, socialist um, governments. Um, Yugoslavia is a different case in point, and. Um, with the result that it really weakened that entire middle Europe structure, which laid her open to Nazism and then to communism. And, you know, this has been played out for the rest of the century. But he's an interesting um, figure. He's very much um, overridden, dismissed by historians. But um, he's... Um, a, Wonderful, wonderful man. Um, anyway, so he's my patron saint of um, difficult things. <laughs> and, yeah, um, one of your characters mentioned that he was up for sainthood. Was he confirmed as a saint? He's he's blessed. Oh, he's blessed. Got so it. that's why I've called him a truly blessed friend in the dedication. Mm -hmm. He's the blessed, a blessed, I think, 20, ooh, 2013? Wow. Pretty recent, yeah. Mm. It's pretty cool. It's beautiful. Um, so moving from your grand sweeping historical overarching thing, I want to go into the characters. Um, so obviously from the title, I think a lot of people can pick up that vengeance and justice are big themes in, uh, in By Violence and Avenged. Yeah. Um, and I think especially in like, Phoebe and her two uh, love interests, Karem and uh, Hubby. Hubie. Hubie, is that how you say it? Yes, 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 Sophie Hubert. Okay, 
QB and um, and uh, Emil too. Um, Phoebe's obviously she's on her own path for vengeance, and she. I feel like she um, she wants to find love. Like she almost gets married at one point, um, but she keeps getting distracted by this by this uh, this manhunt she's on. <laughs> Um, and, and then you have Karem too, who's this Turkish man, kind of a nominal Muslim who's, uh, was, uh, has like a criminal past and was punished for it. So he's got like a different perspective on, he's moved on and is clearly very nice and, um, respectful and probably the, the kindest, um, person to her, um, and then you've got Hubie, who uh, Hubie's a very interesting character. What were you, what what did you have in mind when you were writing him? <laughs> um, oh, let's see, let's see. Um, each of the characters in the book, um, I have to say, do represent a different aspect of the whole political situation. So he really had to encapsulate that. Habsburg legacy you know he's he's the character along with his mother um and so there there were all sorts of things that went into that you know when you're writing a character you know the name is incredibly important it's sort of a birthing of the character when you actually pin a name on them and um so Hubi is short for Hubert which and Saint Hubert is the patron saint of hunters um in particular and he's Schutz von Rechtschaffen, which is Schutz is a hunter um, uh, and a protector. Um, von Rechtschaffen is of righteousness. Mm. So he is a seeker, he is one who seeks after righteousness, um, a man very serious about his social obligations, about his position in the world, about his his duties to God and others. Um, this is this is and this is Hubie, but at the same time um, compromised by his circumstances because he's no longer in the position that was his um, inheritance as a baron. He is no longer um, able to fulfill, fulfill those traditional obligations. Um, and, you know, in a sense, it's also running, running away from them because he has had his fingers burnt by the circumstances. Um, and I don't want to give too much away. Um, and has his own. Well, he has his own path to to um, to come to terms with. And yeah. they also well, when you have the Nazis invade, that's I think a big moment for him. Where yeah. that's the ultimate. Like I wasn't able to protect my country. Kind of yes. 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 And I think one of the themes in the book is what is what do you do when circumstances are beyond your control either because of the circumstances themselves or because you as a person um are so ill-equipped to have any effect on them you mentioned the whole thing of phoebe with this this tension between love and justice you know um i sort of joke privately with myself she's a bit of an ado annie in that sense that you know Hello? she looks an Ado Annie from Oklahoma. She just oh, looks at a man oh, and falls in love with him. You know? 
just can't help it. You know, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> she's not quite, good, but it, it, it's it, there's that element in it. She's she's just a very sensual, very um, emotionally driven person, a very emotionally needy person um, who would much prefer to love than not. You know, it's it's natural to all of us, but I think in particular, it's particularly intense for Phoebe. Yeah. I think um, anyone whose family life has been disrupted as, as a child, it, yeah. it, you know, that, that's a kind of a natural response. Yeah, it's this craving for for love, which is just so against what she perceives as her duty toward, you know, for justice, as she would describe it. Um, and she's a very tender person. She's a very um, vulnerable, compassionate person. She's naturally compassionate, and yet she's putting herself in a position where she must be most uncompassionate. How do you deal with that? You know, and then you know, Herbie with his, um, you know. Like, He's, he stutters. He, he's, he's got a law degree, but he feels ill-equipped to, you know, for various reasons. He's shied away from doing that. He hides as a musician. Um, he, um, he's in a quandary as to how to fulfil those social obligations. He's young. He's only in his mid-twenties. Um, yeah, but he's at times very weak. The, um, his asthma was a little, a little scary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's that element as well. Um you know, so how does he go about doing what he feels he needs to do, or thinks he needs to do, you know, and faced with a situation, particularly with, you know, the Anschluss and the impact of Nazi law and so forth, how do you deal with that? It's this tidal wave of, of violence, of policy, of, you know, incredibly well-organised, well, not quite well-organised, but um, incredibly <laughs> powerful political engine. I think you can call the Nazis well organized. <laughs> they were, they were in some ways, and the other ways they were incredibly opportunistic. Yeah. Um, it's it's a very curious mixture. I suppose it's sort of like a chess game where you know you've got a plan, but then you <laughs> you have to change things in the course of the game. And um, yeah. What about um, Emil? Can you talk a little bit about what inspired him? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Neil, for, uh, for readers who don't know, he is um, a Jewish uh, person in, living in Vienna. He runs a bookshop. He's like um, he's a communist. Yeah, he's a communist. He kind of made me think of this kid I knew in college who always walked around with like a military trench coat on and the communist manifesto, which <laughs> in his pocket, which symbolically was confusing for me because it was an American military jacket. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's a kind of firebrand kind of guy. Um, and he's in love with Hubie's sister, but is not allowed to marry her because he is, he is Jewish and... Not Christian, he's communist. He's Jewish by circumstance of birth. Mm -hmm. And this, this is the interesting thing about Judaism. I'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. um, but Emil would never call himself. He, he'd say he was he's um, in Jewish by race rather than by religion. Yeah. Um, and he's even his communism is an interesting 
situation. Um, he's very compromised. Um, the the interesting thing with um, communism in in Vienna in particular was that they I think they really took Trotsky's ideas to heart. I don't know whether you've read Animal Farm, but um, the the whole small collective, um, everybody working together, this rule of the proletariat was taken really seriously and it's actually quite effectively implemented. Um, and But it was quite different from the Stalinist communism that emerged later on. You know, so the, the Viennese had achieved their revolution in 1919. They were building their society and changing all the housing and getting everything right. Um, and then watching at the same time the rise of Stalin through the 20s and then the exile of Trotsky in, what, 1926, 27, um, and looking on in, in absolute horror as to way the way this thing was 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 going. So Emil's in this position where he was a, an adolescent when the the end of the war um, had joined the communist cause. Um, you know that that that's fueled his youth. All these these very strong communist socialist ideas. Um, he's been part of the an establishment of this new society in the early 20s when he himself is in his early 20s and then he watches what is happening with you know mother russia and the rise of stalin and he's horrified mm. and this you know so this is this questioning of the ideals and their practice and so when phoebe meets him in the mid-30s he's not quite sure where he stands he's seeing his world fall apart you know, and it's um, with also what's happened in in Austria as a result with the with the fall of the socialists at the end of the twenties and the rise of the the Christian um, um, people party of now with Amdolfus and then later Schuschnigg. Um, you know, this, this and this this is another very interesting example of you know sort of a more Christian socialism trying to bring the principles of rerum novarum um, and Christian social teaching to a republican state, um, which is what the what they wrongly called the Austro-fascists tried to do in the early 30s and then having to deal with a very um, um, difficult society with the, the Nazi um, murmurings, the communist murmurings, the socialist murmurings, and then having to clamp down on it completely because of the threats coming from all angles. And Amos has seen his world come apart. And he really is is looking for a way out of this, a, way, a solution for this when Phoebe meets him. Um, so having him represent, as he does, you know, the, the Austro-communist position, um, which is an interesting one in itself, and then developing into a character, of, you know, and how he faces what. But anyway, that that's how Emil sort of came about. Um, um, when I do characters, I often like to sort of create memes that, you know, how I see myself, how such and such a character sees me, how this character sees me, how the other, you know, all the other characters in the book see me. And I'll often use art to do it, you know, sort of key pictures, paintings and things come to mind. So with Emil... How he sees himself um, is very much the Leonardo da Vinci ideal man, you know, the, the one with the... <laughs> and being an architect by profession, that sense, sense of proportion and rightness. I mean, he's, and he, yet he's, you know, he's ugly, he's deformed, he's... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's how he sees himself. That's it. Um, Where's the picture of Hubie? On my Facebook. Um, Benny drew a picture of Hubie, you see. So it's on my it's Facebook. Very it's cool. actually very accurate. Um, and let's see. Yeah, okay. Um, and then how Hubie sees Emil is um, there's a detail in Michelangelo's Last Judgment of um, the the one of the the devils um, in in the boat rowing the boat across into the underworld. Um, it's this really deformed black figure. Anyway, that's how Hubie sees Emil. Um, Hubie's brother Franz sees Emil as sort of like liberty leading the people, you know, it's that classic um, mid-century French revolutionary type um, <laughs> um, figures. I, I have all these pictures in my mind when I'm doing it. You know, Phoebe sees him as Caliban and has made reference, a few Caliban references from The Tempest um, when she describes him. Um, so there's, anyway, there are all those sorts of elements in it. I just have fun with myself when I'm doing that with literary references when I'm creating <laughs> What about Karim? What what uh what inspired you with his character? Oh, he, he, I like him, but I don't know where you're taking his character. Like Hubie, yeah. I can see his arc kind of yeah. leading towards humility, and he's probably going to get himself into trouble and some political intrigue, and he might turn into Emil or something. I don't know. And then Emil is kind of doing like. I feel like Hoop's mm. going this way and Emil's going like this way. <laughs> and but Karim is he seems very steady and um yeah. yeah well, this is this is a man of the past. Um and he's you know, are coming to terms with a past and are desperate to make a desperateness to make um to 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 really fully come out of it, and um, I'll talk about the theme of you know of mercy later on. Um, and it was it was it was sort of like a, from a pragmatic point of view, I needed a character that Phoebe would meet en route to Vienna. Um, and it was interesting, you know, what route she would have taken to Vienna. We decided to go um, via Constantinople. Um, um, and come across that way through. And so having sort of a Turkish element was quite fascinating. Um, and then, well, what sort of, you know, if she's meeting a character in there, what sort of character would he be? And so Turkey, it, it resulted in a bit of an, an investigation of Turkey at the time, and um, we watched the entire um, uh, Kurt Sayatesura that came out on Netflix, um, binge-watched. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Turkish production. It was a Turkish production of um, um, it is it is a novel. Um, it's about it was a three part a three series thing. As there were oh, about twenty episodes, I think, and it's about a Turkish um, officer in the Imperial Russian Army at the time of the First World War who falls in love with a Russian aristocrat. And it's their very tumultuous um, um, relationship um, throughout the course of World War One, the Communist Revolution, and then Turkey at the end of the war, and then then the rise of modern Turkey. And it was oh, it was fascinating. We were glued to it, <laughs> not going to bed till two o'clock in the morning and everything. Anyway, so um, Karim. Um, sort of it had to be a character that sort of 
blended in with all this. And um, as far as the themes of justice and mercy are concerned, in fact, of you know, his past and a man coming to terms with his past, a man who for whom justice has been very severely um, inflicted and with huge ramifications on his cycle on his psyche. And so having him come in with Phoebe, who is, you know, pursuing this sort of path of vengeance, you know, it's just an interesting um, cultural as well as moral conflict. And, you know, well, you know and then, oh, let's see, where am I going with this? And having him as an older man was another interesting point because of Phoebe's relationship with her father and with other men so she gets on very well with older men she's comfortable with older men and having this older figure it was a it was this father um a substitute father figure in many ways but it has other dimensions to it and um it, it was just a it was he was not quite an afterthought but a um um oh he was tricky to get to get right first of all to to get incorporate into the story um but then once he came in it did become a very interesting um thread to -hmm. follow through and anyway um i don't know whether i answered your question properly but (laughs) sorry um it's hard because like so this is the first of a a trilogy right so a lot of a lot of stuff you haven't even really gotten into yet the book ends shortly i'm not spoiling it it's in history it ends shortly after um the nazis have taken over austria but before they've really started invading the rest of europe um so i know there's a, there's a lot left to get through <laughs> that they yeah. gotta survive and deal with yeah yeah, um, yeah. i think look um in relation to karim uh, look, one of the one of the themes of the book is um is to do with salvation um, and it is to do with a comment that Phoebe's father says to her, there is nothing that happens to us that is not intended for our salvation mm-hmm. and that everyone is in need of salvation and Karen himself is looking for, just in the way Emil, Emil is looking for it without even realising it, um, is looking for a way um, a, a way through, and Phoebe, and it's the this the effect that we have on each other through the communion of saints that is a path that is towards salvation. That we all have a hand to play in each other's salvation, mm-hmm. and it's the effect of, Corrine, of Phoebe on Corinne, the nature of their meeting, um, and what the the two of them talk about how how she treats him is incredibly important for him and for her um, throughout the the books. So, yeah, that's probably a better answer. Yeah, it's good. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't really have any other uh, specific questions. Um, I, I really enjoyed the different things like how everyone is absolutely convinced that war is not going to happen. Why would we ever go to war? We just got out of one. <laughs> yeah, nobody wanted a war. In fact, that's, you know, it's, it's probably, the Second World War is probably a war that should have been fought um, 
in the early 30s, 1933, 34, 35, um, but it couldn't be fought because of um, the, the lack of losses and the, the depression. But, um, and this, um, you know, we're not going to have a war, so we're going to get rid of all our arms, which is what Britain did in particular. France was, um, uh, France did, did not do, um, with the result that they just didn't have the, the means to be able to do it. Um, and um, secondly, yeah, the devastating effects of the First World War, nobody wanted another war. The last thing you want to do, um, which is a misapplication of justice as well, um, was a false mercy um, to delay when things were crying out um, for resolution. Yeah, it was something that Hubby sa Hubie says to Phoebe is kind of towards the end. He says, why are you wasting your time trying to smuggle Jews out of Austria? That's not going to fix the problem. Hmm. Like, oh, man, there's so many people that, I mean, I, I fall into that trap, too, thinking, you know, oh, being kind to my neighbor and providing the little mercies I can, that's not going to fix the big problems of society. So why bother worry about it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they work together, but one cannot detract from the other, um, mm -hmm. and it's a difficult balance to. Yeah, and, um, and looking back, like we hindsight, we know that that's all they could do. Mm. Uh, that they were going to do what he wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> an interesting point in this as well. And I do get this onto this in the second book is because being a Turk, he had experienced the Armenian genocide. Oh. So when he finds Jews coming on his doorstep selling their jewellery in February 1938, he thinks what is going on here immediately because he sees the fear. He's seen that sort of fear before. Oh, man. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> well, that's what prompts him to react to it and take such action because mm -hmm. he's encountered this before. Whereas other people in European countries have not encountered this sort of systematic persecution to the same degree um, and intensity, both geographically as well as, um, you know, is concentrated. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, he doesn't say it at that point, but, you know, he does tell Phoebe in the second book, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. That, that's going to be interesting. Mm. Yeah, so it's, oh, just turn my volume down there. That's better. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, um, yeah, that, that's, it's been, it's been so interesting working through all those sorts of perspectives from different characters, which is just so outside my own experience and having to put myself into all these various situations. Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of recreate something of it. It's been an yeah, interesting challenge. Uh, there's something else that really struck me about your books, and I mentioned it in the review, is that um, Lucy is uh, multiracial. And I've seen that, that kind of identity, mixed identity, explored in a lot of modern books, but I had never seen it explored in historical fiction, especially something so racially charged as World War II. <laughs> Um, but that that was very interesting to me. She's um, she's like a quarter Chinese and quarter Jewish and a quarter white or half white. Oh, and even that, you know, it's Hungarian and Scottish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, I see, 
Um, it's interesting, the Australian gold fields in the 1850s is because you had people come from all parts of Europe and America, um, as well as the, you know, as well as British people came to the gold and Chinese came to the gold fields um, to seek their fortunes and some stayed on. And so this, this racially, racial ferment that was there is quite fascinating. Um, and I think it did produce a slightly different outlook to um, other parts, you know, sort of more isolated parts of the country. Um, so this is where Phoebe is from. It's, you know, it's Ballarat, which is the centre of the Australian gold um, um, gold rush of the 1850s, and that's where he's come from. And um, so it's a very different, sort of that, that more um, uh, multi-ethnic understanding of, of people um, is is very much part of of him, uh, which transfers it. So it's little wonder that he felt so comfortable at ease in mm, Austria. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So so that that was just that was just interesting. Um, and yeah, Phoebe herself being that situation in that in that position, inheriting that, mm -hmm. um, yeah, was it just just came from there. Notwithstanding. Um, you know, there there was still very Australia was very much a very British. You know, um, Britain was still home to many Australians mm -hmm. in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, you know, most of the emigration did come from that, but you do have these seeds of other other cultural um, other cultures present there in small small degrees. And, yeah, and uh, I'm. I'm curious about that going forward obviously her jewish background is going to give her some trouble in your first book um but i'm wondering i mean she's chinese and japanese but i'm wondering if that will that kind of seed of identity will come into play with the pacific or she's in europe so but her friends and family are in australia so yeah yeah well the, the jewish situation is very interesting and it was the Jewish characters and um, I think a lot of problem with fiction is treating Jewish characters um, as either lambs to the slaughter or um, just as a, as a mass and a, more, a, a mass of people who all think the same, who all behave the same because they're all Jewish and um, that's not the case at all. You know? and so it was really important with the Jewish characters in the book to show the various attitudes and the various types of Jewish characters. So you have, um, you know, sort of the Ukrainian refugees that have come from um, the latest communist purge, the Stalinist purges. You've got um, the Epstein family who um, have come from Czechoslovakia um, and are very consciously Jewish um, well, they're, they, they're, they're observant Jews, but at the same time, they consider themselves as, you know, as German. They are, you know, they, they deliberately determined to. The Rosé family is different again, where they're wanting to, the Jewish, their Jewish aspect is not part of their, um, they're, they're not observant. They don't go to synagogue or anything like that. They've converted to Christianity to fit in with the social milieu to, to make it up in society. Um and so that's it's a it's a very different approach which you've got other characters yes who have, have married and have never looked their, their faith has never been important to them um and then you've got Emil, you know who's well 
that <laughs> he's very nominally, you know, Jewish and that's not what he considers um, himself to be. I mean, as he says, you go far back enough, you'll find enough talents and kippers there, you know, but I, I'm not like that. Um, that's what it was all about. You know, all religion is hogwash as far as he's concerned. Um, so, you know, just, just putting that whole spectrum of, of, um, persons um, and you know um, in that way so to be able to look at that that aspect of the Holocaust um, in um, a sort of yeah more detailed more personable way was important. Well, I, I really enjoyed that kind of nuance of identities through like Europe and Australia and all of it it was really interesting. Mm. Oh thank you. Okay. Yeah um, so what, uh, how's the sequel coming along? The sequel, well, look, the whole thing's sort of written and the sequel's sort of, it's the three volumes are sketched out. Um, this is a matter of getting details in. So um, I'm giving myself a, a bit of a sabbatical at the moment because I've got to concentrate on the, on the, um, on the, um, the, publicity regarding the first book and um, so which is it's been good actually having that sort of thing because I can see that the, the boiler at the back of my brain is is going you know sort of bubbling away and all these sort of inspirations come out oh now I know how to write that first chapter in the, in the <laughs> and it's oh, oh I've got the whole I've got the characters mapped down I've got the story mapped out I've got the thing it's just it's just getting the detail of the writing and um um Yes, and the whole, yes, the war years and the aftermath. And yes, well, that was probably another interesting bit was um, the narrative perspective, so working out what angle to tell the story from and what angle in time was really um, important. And so having it being told from, you know, 1957, 1956-57 um, was um yeah, that was that was interesting. So to be able to say, so for the reader to see that there's this world that we've come that we've emerged from that we're rebuilding, um, and then fitting the war years yeah. into yeah. that post war. I don't think, yeah, I don't think we explained that, but uh, there's a frame story for five, the, the historical epic you're writing. That this yeah. series of letters that Phoebe is writing to her younger brother to kind of explain her, their father and where they've come from. And well, it's one letter, um, but the, he's actually in Vienna. He has come to Vienna. And she's living in Vienna in 1957. Yeah, and she, he <laughs> has come there to, to study music. Mm -hmm. And so she's got this younger brother to deal with and to, he's wanting to know the story. Anyway, so they've got this other dimension of the relationship between the two of them um, and um, how this actually, you know, for this, you know, this is really cathartic for Phoebe to have somebody to tell her story to. Um, and it's a way she has of putting all the bits together and she's actually coming to terms with the, um, the whole thing herself. Probably yet again but yet again in a deeper sense mm -hmm. um, and you know how in life that so often happens that something will happen to us and we'll rationalize it one way and then we'll rationalize it another way and it's not until sort of many years afterwards that we're able to really put it in perspective but then it's another thing to actually communicate it to somebody else and for them to put it into their perspective mm -hmm. and how you know there's a there's a huge amount of healing that can be achieved through that 
really read it, but I don't ask you. What, there's a huge musical influence in both of your books, yeah. um, with your characters being musicians and studying in Vienna and under these famous musicians. Where, where does that come from? I'm a musician. Yeah? What do you play? I play, play the piano. Oh, really? I'm a pianist, um, but I, I did learn the cello to, with a distant cello. prospect, a and I do... I did learn the violin for um, by violence and avenged, and I love stringed instruments. Um, I think I always wanted to sound. Ben is saying I'm a cellist. And so, look, I I love string instruments, love string music, quartets, and so forth. And so that it is is a way of channeling a particular personal, um, yeah love through it then, um oh music uh, where do we start with music it's just um music for the first book was a way of it you know the sense that a quartet encapsulates so much about human relationships about society that, that give and take and that um that working together to produce something beautiful um that that was a sort of an important motif in the second one the music in the, in the first book the second book, music um, has almost—it's almost a sardonic element um, of it. Um, music becomes a weapon. Music becomes um, uh, a means. Or oh, for Phoebe, music is—it it is a crutch. It is also a weapon. It's—it's a—it's a life support system for her. It's her security. It's her. Um, but at the same time, it. It's 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 her, it's her livelihood. Um, at the same time, also it's a means of well, in the book, it becomes a means of satire, of survival, of um, of of um, yes, holding one's place. Um, it, it's used for very different ends, and you've got um, yeah. It was it was fun with the by violence and events using music on all sorts of levels through songs through Viennese songs through Christmas carols through um, all sorts of pieces of people coming together orchestral pieces the way in which um, music is used um, I think when when Hubi sees Phoebe and Karem talking in in the Saka Cafe and he tells about the program that um, he's um, Playing in what well, that's the Vienna, the the Philharmonic are uh, performing that night that Phoebe and Karim go see, and there are all these romantic um, pieces of music, but he makes all the references to them, and so this real jibe that uh, you know the way he's venting his jealousy. <laughs> so yeah, it is used as a weapon um, in this book, and becomes more increasingly so as the war um, when the war breaks out. So, um, what do you do outside of writing? Like, where? How do you? What? What do you have to balance and juggle in order to produce? Um, four kids, um, happily married, and so, and we're homeschooling. So you can imagine what that involves. And there's the the music stuff, and then there's the writing things. And you know, I do have a lot of plates spinning. Um, and in a, in a sorry. You're a musician. Are you, are you part? I, I don't know anything about. <laughs> I don't perform. I've got a piano in my living room, and I play that. Um, <laughs> I'd like to do a lot more of it, but I have to write about it instead. 
So that's um, that's a way of channeling all that sort of um, yeah, that stuff as well. So, um, how do you carve out time for your writing? Do you wake up early before the kids are up and write, or well, it's you usually have a room you're not allowed into? Um, it's usually in the afternoons. Um, I tend to look. I'll think about it all the time, and it's amazing how doing the washing and doing the ironing leaves one free to be able to, you know, imagine things. I, I might be ironing shirts, but I'll be somewhere in Vichy, France, or you know, um, somewhere in Vienna or somewhere <laughs> in another time and place. Um, so there's there's that side to it. Um, lots of walks, and you know, you'll be thinking all the time. But the actual physical writing will be done of an afternoon. So once I've done all the the other jobs and everything like that two and four, two hours, bang, I write. Um, mm. And then, you know, there's the reading that needs to be done, particularly for historical stuff, you know, so that'll be done in between times. And, um, yeah, so I'll, I usually have it's about three books on the boil. Um, there's the car book. Um, there's the the coffee table book. Um, <laughs> so the book that I'm reading while I'm waiting for, you know, things, you know, in the car, there's the book that I'm reading at night time and there's the, you know, there'll be one other book around the place and they'll be read slowly over time. Other, other books will be read very quickly, but um, that's usually what happens. Um, and so the writing gets done in very... Um, well, by the end of it, they're very tatty, quad-ruled exercise books, um, which I'll use for scribbling. And I'll just write down all sorts of things, you know. Um, and oops, my battery's running low. And so I'll do that. And then there's the computer writing. And um, I have the very good fortune to be able to type like the wind. So I, I type very fast and um, can get it all down pretty much at the pace I'm thinking, which is great. Just getting that battery in better. Um, yeah, so it, it's a discipline um, and it probably comes from PhD days where um, you just had to, to get it done. Um, so you just you just do it and you focus and it might be agonising sometimes and it is, um, but somehow the words come together and as people often say, you know, how do you write a book? You know, you're the mother of four kids, da, da, da. how do you manage to write a book? And, um, well, you know, you can't write a book but you can write a sentence and it's writing a sentence, another sentence and another sentence and another sentence. You just keep on going mm -hmm. and eventually you have a book. Well, is there, a, is there a website or any way that readers can follow you? Um, there is an young.net, yes, and um, I think also a distantprospect.com. Um, I'm not an avid blogger, but I occasionally put things up. I have a, um, I have a, uh, what's it, what do I call it? Leech Gathering is my blog. Um, <laughs> but you find it on the site. And that comes from Wordsworth's poem, um, Resolution and Independence, where um, the poet is out on the, on the moors and he sees he's a bit down in the dumps because he's finding it very difficult to get ideas together and he's fe feeling the burden of all the great writers before him um and trying to trying to you know trying to produce wonderful a wonderful work of art and he's just it's getting him down and then he sees a fellow um gathering leeches and he's picking up one by one and he's so happy in his occupation um and because he knows it's going to to make people better um and uh, but the the happiness of this man in this painstaking 
difficult, you know, pretty yucky sort of job, um, really sort of um, just bolsters Wordsworth no end and he feels much better about himself. Um, and that, that writing process is a bit like leech gathering. You're sort of you know, picking up the leeches of words and um, putting them all together and um, doing something good with it. Um, so That's really cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, calling in and talking with me all the way from Australia. <laughs> up early. Uh, I really appreciate oh, it. Yeah. Okay. It was lovely talking you to too. you. Um, all right. And if you want to uh, follow Annette Young, you can do so at annetteyoung.net or adistantprospect.com. Uh, and if uh, you can keep an eye out in Catholic Reads. We'll have uh, reviews of her books coming out. And if you don't have time or the money to uh, support a Catholic artist today, that's okay. You can subscribe to our newsletter and get a weekly book marked off 50% off to free. It's just a nice, easy way to explore new authors and support the art. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, we'll talk to we'll uh, see you all later. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye.